Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, what's good, church fam? How are we doing? Ooh, okay. I like that. I like that. Um, if you can, go ahead and turn with me uh, in your Bibles uh, to Exodus 1, Exodus 1, verse 10. So it's been a minute since I have taught up here, so if I haven't met you yet, my name is Marcus, and I am one of the pastors here at City Church. And if you're new here, we are currently in a series titled Precious in His Sight, where we are talking about all things race and justice from a biblical perspective. So last week, Kent kicked us off uh, by showing us how God has a heart for all ethnicities because they represent and image him, the creator. Theologians call this the Imago Dei. Now, what we're going to talk about today is another theme in the Bible from beginning to end. Now, the interesting part about that is if you grew up predominantly in a white church, you probably never really heard this thing talked about a ton. But if you grew up in a predominantly black church, you probably heard this theme talked about quite a bit. That theme is oppression. And what I want to do for us today is to biblically define what oppression is and then show us how from the very beginning of the Bible oppression existed. And then from there, I'm going to show us how oppression continues to this day. Now, I understand that may be a little heavy, but here's why we need to go there in this series. First and foremost, this is because oppression is sadly a part of the experience of being black here in America. The Bible over and over again makes the case that to be be believers in the image of God in each person means that we must recognize, we must condemn, and we must oppose anything that functionally denies the Imago Dei. And oppression is one of the most consistent ways that the Imago Dei is denied to various people groups from both in the Bible and today. But before we do all of that, I was out in the crowd last week, and uh, let me just say you guys were a little tense, just, just a little bit, uh, like for at least for the first 10 minutes or so, you could have quite literally heard a pin drop, which I get, I totally get it. It's almost like we're talking about race or something. Um, so let me, just, let me just mention a couple of things. First and foremost, we're family. We're family. So yeah, there may be things that we all need to grow in and to repent of in this series, but that doesn't mean that, that we need to be nervous or anxious about it. That's just part of walking with Jesus. That's everyday life for us. At times, there are going to be things that we need to own up to and to repent of. And second, there are going to be hard parts that are going to be heavy to think on. So when I get towards the end, more than ever before, I'm going to need to know that you guys are still with me. So if you hear anything that resonates with your spirit or something that you think is worth emphasizing, be sure to say amen. Shout a mm mm-hmm, something. Snap your fingers, jot down notes, whatever it is that you do 
however you do it, I want you to acknowledge that the Spirit is indeed speaking truth today. Amen? Amen. There we go. Love it. So first things first, for us to get anywhere, we're going to need a common definition of what the Bible means when it's referring to oppression. Now, when we look through the Bible, the word oppression, which transliterates to, to lock it, uh, means to squeeze, press, or to oppress. So in context of what we will overview, we would say that oppression is when the powerful take more for themselves at the expense of the weak. Oppression is when the powerful take more for themselves at the expense of the weak. So it, it fails to see other human beings made in the image of God. So anytime one person decides to boost up or solidify or to increase their power at the expense of someone with less power than them, that is oppression from a biblical perspective. In short, oppression is my power at your expense. My power at your expense. Now, once you realize that that's what oppression is, you can begin to spot it from the earliest pages in the Bible. In Genesis 1.28, after God creates humanity, he calls us to, to rule and to reign over creation, to help with the flourishing of what he had already set in motion. But as soon as sin enters the picture of Adam and Eve, it turns them against one another. And so they start blame shifting and vying for power and position. Then God tells them that as, as a result, Eve will forever be trying to, to rule over Adam, and Adam will forever be trying to rule over Eve. Instead of ruling, over, uh, uh, ruling and reigning over creation, they sadly try and rule and reign over one another. Church family, that is oppression. That is the mindset of my power at your expense. In the next generation of humanity, there are two brothers, Cain and Abel. When Cain finds himself at a disadvantage with God, he decides to kill Abel to ensure that that doesn't continue. That's oppression. That's my power at your expense. Then there's a guy named Lamech who, who is the first polygamist in the Bible. He has multiple wives and treats them all like property. He then brags that he killed a man for wounding him. So Lamech uses his power to treat others like property and also to eliminate others and exalt himself. That is oppression. That is my power at your expense. Then we have the story of Joseph, which is a little bit more than a Technicolor Dreamcoat story. It's about a brother who gloats about his father's favoritism towards him to his brothers. Wrong move. And then they respond in kind by throwing him in a pit and selling him into slavery. That is oppression. That is my power at your expense. And then we have maybe the most quintessential story in the Bible about oppression. The story of the Israelites enslaving, uh, uh, sorry, the story of the Egyptians enslaving the Israelites under Pharaoh's rule. At this point in the story, the newly minted Pharaoh saw God's people as a threat to his rule and reign over Egypt. So he says in verse 10, come, we must deal shrewdly with them, them being the Israelites, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we will join, uh, they will join uh, our enemies, fight against us, and then leave the country. 
So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, with forced labor and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So Pharaoh oppresses God's people. He, he makes them work uh, uh, under his rule and under his reign. He makes them build his houses and work in his fields so he and the Egyptians' lives would be better, while Israel's lives would be made bitter. So Pharaoh, as we can clearly see, used his power at the expense of others. So early in the Bible, we see how God's mandate to, to rule and to reign over creation was marred by the effects of sin. That from the very beginning, mankind sought to, to use their power at the expense of others rather than seeing each other made in the Imago Dei, made in the image of God. And not just individuals, entire populations of people groups, as we saw with Pharaoh. And see, any time you, you have an individual with oppressive tendencies using their power to enact oppressive laws and practices, you're going to end up with oppressive systems as a result. So oppression, while it can be interpersonal, can also be systemic. Now, what I want to do for the next little bit is to show you how the plight of black Americans fits squarely into the biblical category of oppression. I think part of the problem when it comes to addressing the mistreatment of uh, minorities in our country from a biblical perspective is that we actually lack a biblical language. We lack biblical vocabulary for it. So we might think back on America's history and go, oh man, yeah, that was so awful. That is so awful what, what happened back in the day. But we struggle with where to go from there. But by giving biblical language to things in our world, it helps us discern uh, uh, what happened and is happening today. And therefore, to know what, biblically speaking, we should actually do about it. Does that make sense? So, so in this teaching, we're actually going to mainly cover the oppression of black Americans. Now, that's not because, you know, black Americans were the only ones oppressed here. Native Americans were and sometimes still are. Asians were and sometimes still are. Hispanics were and sometimes still are. There are plenty of oppression in our nation's history. But in every teaching, you have to decide what you're going to be able to cover well. And so based on my ethnicity and my experience, I wanted to focus on that. But the ideas we'll discuss very much apply all to oppression. And hear me say, as we uh, dive into this, it will not be easy for my white brothers and sisters here in this room. But know this, my goal is not to guilt or to shame, none of that. I only want to help all of us see the broken history that all of us have come from. We are where we are today because of the fruit of 400 years of oppression. Now, most of us have, have probably heard the broad strokes of America's history, but today I want us to walk through some of it with this uh, theme of oppression. We want to uh, do that so we can discern how God feels about it and then also how we should think and feel and act in response to it. So we'll start where you would expect with the institution of slavery. And hear me say, I will not do this section true justice since we only have but so much time today, but if we were in a black church, 
just know I would take my sweet, sweet time. I would take my sweet time because, you know, the black church typically ran a little long. And yeah, I, I would probably take about three or four hours. But I'm not going to do that to y'all today. I won't, I won't do that. But who knows? Spirit may be. Spirit, spirit may move. We, we'll see. We'll see. All right. Um, all that to say, since we will only go over some of the more major events of oppression throughout our history, let me suggest that you check out uh, the book, The Color of Compromise. It is a fantastic book by Jamar Tisby. We did actually did a book club on it here, which was very cool, where, we, where he, he thoroughly walks through America's history when it comes to the injustices done to black people. So I would highly encourage you, write it down, take a picture, whatever you need to do, make sure you're you read that book. It is really, really good. So again, to start off with our history, we have to start from the very beginning. White Europeans now have a new country to call their own, which they stole, by the way, from the Native Americans. But currently, it's just that. It's just land. There's no infrastructure. There's no commerce to speak of. There's no conveniences. None of that exists. So what they need is human labor to help build up that infrastructure quickly and cheaply enter the concept of chattel slavery, which meant that you were the personal property of your slave owner. So there's, there's really no way to sugarcoat this fam. Uh, black men, women, and children were forced to serve white men, white women, and white children. From the bedrock of our country's history, white Europeans took land from one people group, and then decided to enslave an entirely different people group to build up a society where they would thrive. That is the very definition of oppression. That is my power at your expense. And one of the saddest and most infuriating parts of the American church's history is how similar they, would, how similar they looked during this time. White Christians were frequently some of the loudest proponents of the colonial slave trade, proclaiming Christians owned and treated slaves like their non-Christian neighbors. Now, often these Christians would attempt to evangelize slaves and tell them about Jesus, but if and when those slaves converted to Christianity, they were still seen as slaves. They chose to see African people through cultural categories, slaves, rather than biblical categories, brothers and sisters. Often Christian slave owners would abuse texts in the Bible to convince their newly converted slaves that they should do a better job of submitting to them. During this time, black slaves were not regarded for their full humanity or citizenship. Case in point, there was a policy written into our Constitution by our white founding fathers that decreed that each slave would count as three-fifths of a white person. That family is oppression. That is my power at your expense. Around the late 1800s, around the, after the Civil War, the Reconstruction Era began, and in the Dred Scott uh, decision of 1857, the Supreme Court of the United States, in an official opinion and verdict, declared that black people, and I quote, were an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race and that black people had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. This was how the highest court in our country interpreted the Constitution, our Constitution. 
But as we know, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't fit into the Imago Dei. But it does fit into my power at your expense. In 1865, newly freed black people were granted land in the form of reparations. It was termed 40 acres and a mule. But shortly after, Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor, overturned the 40 acres and the mule mandate in order that redistributed lands be returned to former enslavers which gave land and property and power right back to white people, forcing blacks to either abandon their land and property and start over from nothing, or to serve their former enslavers just to pay for the land that was taken out from under them. From here, the Reconstruction era gave way to the Jim Crow era. While there are many instances that were designed to segregate and to subjugate black people, uh, in this era, the north and the west part of the states, which was supposedly not as bad as the former Confederate states, had what's called sundown towns. Now, sundown towns were uh, uh, communities where black people had to be out before sundown or face violent repercussions. White people, of course, did not have to abide by the same practice. Again, my power at your expense. While Congress ratified the 15th Amendment in 1870 to ensure that no one could be denied the right to vote based on the color of their skin, state legislatures, especially in the South, had other ideas. They passed laws that, that instituted poll taxes, uh, understanding clauses, and had literacy tests in order to exclude black people from voting. That is called voter suppression, or for our purposes today, oppression. That is my power at your expense. In the 1900s, the civil rights movement was beginning to make way. Names like Martin Luther King Jr., Booker T. Washington, Rosa Parks, Thurgood Marshall, the list goes on, and many more were starting to fight for black people's rights. But still, oppression continued. There are some who would say that, that between Lincoln and MLK, they were the one-two punch that ended racism altogether. <laughs> but you, you can't erase 400 years of race-based oppression by saying you're colorblind or by passing a few laws. In modern-day America, oppression is, is not as overt as it once was, but its effects still linger and have a commanding grip on black and white people alike. If we were just to, to zoom out for a second and look at the nationwide income levels when it comes to racial disparity, according to the U.S. Census in 2011, the median wealth holdings of a white household was $111,000 plus. For a black household, it was $7,000. When you further control those numbers for education purposes, you might think that removes some of the disparity, but it actually doesn't. The disparity actually gets worse. For, for college degree households, the numbers are $300,000 and one $300 versus $26,000. The difference is so large that if, if all homes and vehicles were taken from white Americans, they would still on average have a greater net worth than black Americans. And a most recent study was done to show that the net worth of a white American family versus a black American family was 10 times greater. So what's going on here? What's going on here? We no longer have slavery. We've, we've done away with at least some of America's previous 
racist policy, but, but why is there still such a dramatic difference between the experience of a black person and the experience of a white person here in America today? Well, let's, let's think about it like this. Imagine with me for a second that, that my great-great-grandfather sits down with a, a white person's great-great-grandfather and they are uh, slave owners and they decide to play Monopoly together. Now, I don't know if Monopoly existed back in the day, but let's just say they played Monopoly together. So they play and, and when my great-great-grandfather passes go, he looks to rightfully collect his $200, right? But instead of getting his $200, he actually gets a quick punch to the face by the white slave owner. And is told he will never gain any money and thereby not being able to gain any property. And that is how the game is played for a generation. Now, let's say, fast forward, a few generations go by and my grandfather at the height of Jim Crow and the white person's grandfather at the height of Jim Crow continue that same game of Monopoly. When my grandfather passes go, he has learned to cover his face in fear of getting punched. But the white person's grandfather says, actually, hey, like, I'm not going to punch you. You can actually collect your $200. Matter of fact, I will even let you buy some of the property on this land. But you can only buy the brown and light blue properties, the ones no one wants. You can't get the red or green or yellow ones and don't even think about boardwalk or park place. So this goes on for another generation. As they die off, I pick back up that game, that same game of Monopoly with the great-great-grandchild of the slave owner. And they are, as you can expect, very apologetic for the, how their family treated my family. We sit down and the white person says to me, hey, you can pass go, you can collect all of your money, buy any property that is available to you. I just want things to be equal. We, we are equal. We are equal. But let me ask you, is that true? Is that true? Is, is the game now equal? Now, sure, in some ways, you know, we get to, to uh, uh, roll the dice uh, the same. We get both half turns. We both can collect $200 when we pass go. But the game is far from equal. They've had five generations to enrich themselves and acquire property, and I've had none. And now everywhere I land, I have to also pay them because they own all the property. Whether they know it or not, that is their power at my expense. The oppression of the past still carries weight into the future. Now, all I've done thus far is to show you a handful of isolated instances of oppression. Examples that even just on their own are instances of oppression. We don't even have to uh, uh, have time to go into the general injustices in our country that have contributed to the oppression of black Americans. We, we haven't even talked about lynchings. We haven't talked about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. We haven't talked, uh, we talked only a little bit about voter suppression, but there's so much more to that. We haven't talked about the war on drugs that the Nixon administration actually explicitly admitted was an attempt to imprison more black people. There's so much more that we could go into, but I think you guys get the point. The experience of, of black people in America has been categorized constantly by oppression. But other people, by other people gaining and sustaining power at their expense. 
But what is the good news in all of this? After hearing all this, how do we tackle this mess that we have inherited? How do we tackle this as believers in Christ, as followers of Jesus? How do we actually tackle this? Well, after hearing all of this, your gut reaction may be to want to do something. You may want to protest. You may want to act. You may want to march. You may want to, you know, shout it from the rooftops. And I would say yes and amen to all of that. And we, and we will surely talk on application and future sermons. But before we do all of that, there are two things that I actually want you guys to do. Ben, you can actually come on up. There are two things that I want you guys to do. This is the, the amen section. First, we need to look to Jesus We need to look to Jesus. The entire biblical story continually points to a Messiah who would do something about oppression for his people. When Jesus arrived on the scene, that was one of the most pressing questions on everyone's mind. How are you going to liberate us from our oppression? And he did just that. But he did it in a way that no one had anticipated. By undergoing oppression himself and through that using oppression against itself in the form of the cross. So, for my black brothers and sisters in the room, Jesus knows the pangs of suffering and unjust death. He, he understands being despised. He understands being rejected by mankind for no apparent reason. But see, he He exposed the ugly realities of oppression by becoming a victim of it. Isaiah 53 would say that by his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. We are healed from the effects of sin. Not just the ones that we commit, but the ones that are committed against us. By his wounds we are healed. For my white brothers and sisters in the room, Jesus shows you a better way to use your privilege and your power in this generation. No one was more powerful than Jesus. A point that Philippians 2 actually makes. Let's check it out. It says, let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not, kept, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself. Somebody say humbled himself. And became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, So Jesus humbled himself for our benefit, So if oppression is my power at your expense, the opposite of oppression is to say your power at my expense. So for my white brothers and sisters, leverage the cultural power and position that you often have by just just by being white and use it to lift up and to elevate and to advocate for black people, for people of color. That's how Jesus often used his power and that's how we are called to use ours. 
and also white folks in the room. When, when black people talk about you having privilege, we're not so much telling you this so you could feel bad or to, to feel guilty about it. We're just trying to help you to recognize your privilege and then use it for better ends, much like Jesus did. So this, this looks like humbling or disadvantaging yourself to the uh, for the advantage of others less fortunate than you. In his roadmap to racial justice, where, where do we go from here? King wrote, power properly understood is the ability to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, and economic changes. He went on to explain power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. Justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. See, love is not a mere feeling of affection. In the beloved community, love is actually an action that uses the levers of power to bring about justice. Now, Jeff is going to get into the specifics of justice a lot more next week, but for today, suffice it to say that justice looks like giving power to those who are weaker at your expense, and sometimes at the expense of your very own power. Second, as followers of Jesus and, and brothers and sisters of one another, we actually need to lament our history properly. Now, sadly, this isn't actually taught in the church, especially here in the American church, but lament is actually something that followers of Jesus have been doing around the world for a very long time. It's, it's when we both mourn the painful realities of this world and we cry out desperately for God to do something about it. So for my black brothers and sisters in the room, be active, protest, march, do all of that. That is needed. But don't forget to seek the face of God and be on your knees. Because only through him can you truly deal with the emotions from the injustices that you see. And for my white brothers and sisters, seek reconciliation, yes. Stand up for your black brothers and sisters, yes. Do all of that, but don't miss this. Don't, don't skip the step of mourning with your black brothers and sisters who are mourning. It may not seem like much, but lamenting is actually a God-word-first action. When you truly stop to reflect, to, to truly lament, you are feeling the weight of this cultural moment and actually following the scriptures when it calls us to weep with those who weep. Oh, there is something when you cry along someone who is hurting. There's something to that. This, this empathy, this empathy, it creates a bond and acknowledges that the very, uh, um, that the very Imago day is between us. That, that, that you're seeing me in the image of God. You're seeing those who are hurting in the image of God when you lament. May we, may we not make the same sin of the past of seeing this whole thing as, as us versus them. But may we see the, this as mourning next to our brothers and sisters. 
In our midst, we have black brothers and sisters weeping and mourning. And as one family of God, we should mourn. During this time, I want us to pray. To pray and to, to, to lament the realities of this, of what we just heard today. I want us to, to pray over this, to lament with our black brothers and sisters in this room, with our coworkers, with our friends, people that we know, people that are close. I want us to take, to take some time and to do that right now. So will you bow your heads? Will you pray with me?